Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea. A couple months ago, I got the chance to speak to Ajay Kapoor, who is an engineer and entrepreneur, and currently a senior program associate in biosecurity and pandemic preparedness at Open Philanthropy. And I was lucky enough to be joined by Jamvi Ahuja, who is a DPhil student in computational biology at Oxford and an affiliate with the Future of Humanity Institute. And since recording this interview, she was selected to be part of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity program. Our main focus in this conversation was a technology called metagenomic sequencing, which is a way of comprehensively uh, looking at all the genetic material in some sample, rather than just looking for a specific known pathogen. Like how PCR tests for COVID are just looking for COVID, but will ignore other things. Now, when experts try to imagine a world that is secure against uh, future pandemics, including pandemics worse than COVID, it turns out that having this ability to really quickly and cheaply spot new pathogens just looks hugely important. So uh, we talk about how to make sure this technology becomes much more accessible and how metagenomic sequencing could make the world safer against biological threats. We also talk about new ways of funding high-impact research, refuges against worst case pandemics, and how and why you should get involved with this work if you have an engineering background. Big thanks to Ajay and Janvi. I learned so much on this one. Okay, here's the episode. Ajay and Janvi, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Cool. So one question we've started asking everyone, Ajay, is what is a question that's just on your mind right now that you're kind of stuck on? Hmm. That is a great question. I guess one of the the big things I'm thinking about right now um, is what are all of the technology bottlenecks to making progress in metagenomic sequencing? Um, So I guess how can we take the technology from where it is today to where it needs to be by the end of the decade so we can build an early warning system for emerging pathogens? Sweet. Well, let's talk about that then. Sure. So... I've been hearing about metagenomic sequencing a lot more recently. I'm an outsider to um, biotech stuff. Can you explain just in very general terms, what is metagenomic sequencing? Yeah, so uh, genomic sequencing is the reading of genetic material from a sample. And metagenomic sequencing is, uh, I guess at a very high level, reading all of the genetic information uh, from a given sample. So typically what's done is uh, something called amplicon sequencing or some variant of that, which just means you take uh, a primer. So this could be like a a genetic substring, um, I guess is one way of thinking about it. And you're saying, uh, I want to amplify everything in my sample that has this substring in it. And um, what that allows you to do is effectively enrich your sample. Um, But the downside is that you don't see... Uh, all of the things that you didn't enrich. Um, So the key with metagenomic sequencing is that it's pathogen agnostic, um, or in the literature, this is sometimes referred to as unbiased, hypothesis-free. The reason that's important is because if we want to be able to detect novel pathogens that are emerging, we need to be able to see the things that we weren't looking for. Got it. So to try saying that back, so I've got my sample of, you know, saliva or whatever, and... Typically, in genomic sequencing, um, the specific test I'm using already has in mind a pathogen which it's testing for, and there's some procedure by which it kind of amplifies 
that pathogen, but kind of throws away or ignores everything else. So it's really good at checking whether, in fact, I have such and such a disease, but it's not going to look at everything in that sample. And in fact, the sample is going to be full of all other kinds of things uh, as well. Yeah, that's right. So uh, tools like PCR, culture, serology, amplicon sequencing, and and even CRISPR diagnostics uh, right. don't satisfy this key constraint. Um, they're they're not pathogen agnostic. There's a um, uh, this kind of uh, f funny story um, yeah. uh, or I guess uh, joke. Uh, there's a man who's lost his keys, and he uh, it's at night. He's kind of crawling around on the ground trying to find his keys uh, underneath a lamppost. And a police officer comes by and asks, what are you doing? And he responds, I'm looking for my keys. Mm -hmm. uh, the police officer asks, did you lose your keys right here under the lamppost? And the man responds, no, but this is where the light is. Right. Right. And um, that's you know, effectively what we're doing with existing diagnostics. And what we need to be able to do is um, look at everything that, yeah. that exists in a sample. Cool. Got it. And I guess one question is, like, why, why is this especially important or useful? Maybe it's just totally obvious. But can you just speak to why it might just end up mattering a lot that we can detect like novel pathogens as well as all the ones we currently know about? Yeah. Um, so the hope is that we can have this capability deployed ubiquitously. And when we have that kind of deployment, then when something new emerges that's potentially a very high consequence pathogen, yeah. uh, it could be highly transmissible, highly virulent, um, uh, have other properties that uh, yeah. make it concerning. We want to be able to detect it as early as possible so that we can act to contain it. Yeah. And uh, should it not be containable, we want to provide as much lead time as possible um, so that other measures can be taken. Got it. Cool. I guess one way to spell this out is just to ask you to maybe try describing like a world in like X decades from now in which metagenomic sequencing is is cheap enough to be like close to be ubiquitous mm -hmm. like what does that look like when do i when does it get used that kind of thing yeah so i guess there are three um general categories of context where you might uh see it deployed uh those are uh, clinical sentinel and environmental mm -hmm. uh so clinical is uh, what you would expect um you maybe you could walk into so I guess, yeah, there's um, what might be possible a decade from now, and then there's yeah, yeah, what yeah. might be possible, you know, many decades from now. Yeah. Um, Let's go for many decades from now. Many decades from now, okay. And then work back. Yeah, so uh, I guess you could imagine that, uh, yeah, so I guess a fourth, fourth context would be like point of person or, or mm -hmm. point of home. So uh, in the far, far future, you might imagine that you uh, wake up in the morning and um, go to the bathroom, and before you brush your teeth, you just spit into a tube that, uh, you know, scans and tells you whether you have any of you know a number of known pathogens and if there's something that's never been seen before we'll look at the sequence uh predict something about um what its uh functions are and um assess whether it might be concerning um okay cool yeah but so i guess maybe nearer term um the other three contexts are a little more relevant so uh, you can imagine in a clinical context uh, let's say you have uh, cold or something like that, um, or you think you do, and you go to the doctor and uh, ask for a diagnosis, and the doctor can just take a sample from you, uh, just a you know crude uh, liquid sample could be saliva, um, load it into a, a cartridge, stick that cartridge in a box that they have sitting on their countertop, uh, 
and then press a button and then less than an hour later uh, they'll have a list of all of the pathogens that were in that sample whether they're things that uh, they'd seen before or not awesome. and then um, if it's something that uh, has never been seen before and is uh, potentially concerning, then that information could be networked together with um, uh, other uh, devices that are also um, providing this kind of sensing capability, okay. uh, providing like this live data stream to public health authorities. Does this have something to do with the Sentinel idea you mentioned? Yeah, so uh, Sentinel would be uh, the idea of regularly sampling from people who are... Uh, likely to be at higher risk of exposure to, to pathogens. So these could be uh, infectious disease researchers, they could be um, you know, TSA agents who are you know, coming in contact with people on a regular basis, um, they could be uh, people working at uh, high density like livestock facilities, um, anywhere where the, these, these people uh, serve as kind of an early warning for the spread of, uh, of a pathogen. Okay, so they're most likely to be exposed earliest, and therefore they're good people to focus on if you want to like get the message out as soon as possible. That's the idea, yeah. And um, also there are, um, I guess, yeah, you, you, you wanna be able to detect things that are spreading uh, asymptomatically as yeah. well. Right. And uh, if you're only looking at people in the clinical context, you're only going to be um, getting samples from people who are symptomatic uh, for some reason I or see, because there's a reason I'm coming into the doctor. Yeah. Got it. All right, so I guess one thing I'm wondering is, in either case, whether I'm symptomatic or not, um, maybe I, you know, give you my sample, like throw it into the machine, and tell me if I'm wrong, but presumably it's going to pick up on a bunch of known pathogens mm -hmm. and then a bunch of unknown pathogens, but maybe only a small subset of those unknown pathogens are actually like really worth worrying about. Yeah. Is there anything that you that we can do to kind of get a sense of which of these unknown pathogens are like most likely to be the serious ones? Yeah, so uh, there are uh, a number of tools that allow you to take a, a genetic sequence and um, predict its function. Um, and um, yeah, there are a couple of projects out there right now. For example, uh, the Secure DNA uh, project out of Kevin Esfeldt's lab uh, working on uh, providing this kind of predictive capability in a safe and secure way. Sweet. Um, and that's like a, just a computational challenge, presumably? Yeah. Yeah. There are existing bioinformatic tools as well as uh, kind of emerging uh, methods that, uh, that can allow for that kind of triage capability. Can we maybe like go through what the different types of surveillance look like? So what would environmental surveillance look like and clinical and then sentinel look like? And it also seems like um, when we're talking about a world that's tens of years ahead, um, and everything is super ubiquitous, we maybe wouldn't need Sentinel so much um, just because everyone is constantly being sequenced. Um, so what are sort of like the things, the types of sequencing that we want like much sooner or in the next 10 years? And then what are the types of sequencing that we'd want in this like, um, yeah, more perfect world uh, tens of years from now? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I think uh, Sentinel uh, testing is more important uh, earlier than it is than it is later but I think it's probably still going to be an important component down the line um, yeah it's also worth noting um, for uh, for anyone who's not already familiar I guess we're, we're talking about uh, pathogen sequencing not constantly uh, sequencing uh, human uh, DNA at all times um, both for privacy reasons and also for feasibility reasons there's in each in a given sample there's a lot of human DNA and uh, it makes it hard to see everything else that's in the sample. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, yeah, so I guess uh, clinical, uh, kind of already described that a little bit, uh, where we want anyone who's showing up at a clinic, um, you know, could be urgent care, could be uh, hospital, could even be, you know, eventually primary care, um, should we uh, drive down the cost and turnaround time sufficiently that that's feasible. Uh, and uh, not only does that provide a useful diagnosis to the care provider, but it can also serve as this, um, you know, early warning for uh, anyone who's subscribing to that, uh, that data feed of pathogens, you know, location, time, uh, unique identifier, uh, you know, potential threat level. And uh, so that, that's the clinical context. Uh, Sentinel uh, is similar to clinical in that it's drawing from human samples. So um, very likely the types of devices that uh, we'd be looking at there are fairly similar, similar in that we're taking a crude uh, liquid clinical sample uh, from humans, running that through a device uh, and getting an answer. Um, environmental looks fairly different there's um, a number of different contexts in which uh, sequencing could be deployed for uh, environmental uh, early warning. There's uh, wastewater, uh, waterways, uh, air in, um, you know, for example, like train stations or airports, you could sample from the air, um, sample from the, uh, from the wastewater systems. Um, it's also, uh, I guess, not necessarily the case that sequencing is the only way to go for environmental. Um, you could imagine all, things like Raman spectroscopy uh, also being useful where you have these like really large volumes of um, uh, like fluids or, or other uh, samples that you want to collect and you just want to be able to answer, is there something new here and is it spreading or is it growing exponentially in my, in my sample? Um, and then once you have that information, then maybe you can go back and uh, do some more extensive sequencing. So that's, these are, you know, a lot of open questions and, uh, the folks uh, working on nucleic acid observatory can, uh, talk a lot more about environmental sequencing. Cool. So, but broadly speaking, it sounds like there are three kinds of use case for metagenomic sequencing once we get it and they are clinical. So I come into the doctor and maybe as part of my visit, I can, um, take a sample. There's this kind of sentinel idea where if I'm likely to be exposed early to like a novel pathogen, then that might be a reason to like get some testing going on there. And then thirdly, atmospheric um, sequencing, which is like you mentioned, maybe in wastewater or even air. Um, I guess one question just to get this concrete in my head is like, if you imagine that we had metagenomic sequencing in 2019, um, how might things have gone differently? You know, it's actually interesting. Um, metagenomic sequencing was used to identify oh, okay. SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> uh, the, the issue is that um, it was just circulating for a long time before that happened. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, some estimates are you know, about 45 days between right, okay. uh, emergence in humans and uh, actual uh, detection. And what that meant is that you had this uh, large population of people who had uh, this pneumonia of unknown origin. Uh, and uh, eventually enough of them... Uh, showed up at uh, clinics that um, people thought it was prudent to figure out what exactly was going on. And so they then, uh, you know, cultured the samples, uh, isolated, uh, and identified uh, SARS-CoV-2. 
And uh, the reason, I guess maybe one reason that that uh, took so long is that uh, metagenomic sequencing is not, it's this kind of tool of last resort as opposed to this right. frontline diagnostic. And in order to get it to the point where it's ubiquitous enough that, you know, maybe within like the first couple of days of the emergence uh, in humans that it could be detected, uh, we need to be able to drive down the cost and turnaround time so it's it's feasible um, as a frontline diagnostic. And what is a reasonable price of just getting like a sequence done right now? Uh, so for metagenomic sequencing, the, uh, I guess, estimate for um, cost of goods per sample yeah. is probably pretty close to like about $5,000. Okay. Uh, so it's quite expensive. Uh, and then the fixed cost of the instrument you actually use yeah. is uh, obviously substantially more expensive yeah. than that. Um, okay. And what we want to be able to do is drive it down to the point where it can compete with where PCR is today. Mm -hmm. um, so you could imagine something close to you know a dollar uh, cost of goods sold per sample um, and you know, 500 to, you know, a couple thousand dollars for the instrument. Right, right. So there's, um, yeah, a, a lot, a lot to be done to figure out how we can accomplish that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe this is a, a dumb question, but what are the comparable costs for PCR? Like how much is a big PCR machine gonna, gonna cost me? Yeah. It, so I guess it depends on how large the machine is and whether it's, uh, at, you know, a very automated yeah. kind of centralized lab facility as opposed to something that's, um, a little bit more distributed, but uh, anywhere from, you know, a couple of thousand. So yeah, I guess at the, at the low end, they're actually um, kind of DIY devices that you can build for like a few hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, I think like five, five or six hundred dollars or so. Um, and then uh, most are in like the few thousand dollar range, like, you know, two yeah. to two to five thousand dollars. And then uh, for the very large kind of multiplex devices, uh, those can be substantially more, you know, ten, uh, twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, so if I'm getting this right, you've been thinking recently about how we can actually begin driving down the costs and like think thinking systematically about what are the like major blockers and a kind of roadmap from from here to there. So yeah, curious to hear about about first of all, like yeah, what does that process look like, and then eventually we can talk about what things have you actually identified. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, as you mentioned, kind of going through this technology roadmapping process where yeah. we look at, uh, I guess, the landscape of current technologies used in every step of the process from sample acquisition to sample preparation mm -hmm. to sequencing to analysis. And then uh, also reasoning from first principles uh, to understand what the constraints are. Um, so I guess there's a number of different constraints. There's the um, regulatory constraints, market constraints, and then there's like the, you know, hard physics-based constraints. And within the physics-based constraints, we want to try to identify what are the true bottlenecks that are preventing, um, you know, yeah. uh, order of magnitude improvements on some of the, mm -hmm. uh, the metrics that we care about. Um, and then from there, uh, the idea is to come up with workarounds for some of these bottlenecks that, uh, can potentially you know lend themselves to uh, research and development projects or um, some other uh, means of kind of attacking that bottleneck. Yeah. So what's the idea here? Is it that some of these bottlenecks just look like really hard to kind of crack head on, and so 
we need to like spot these in advance and start thinking about like alternative like routes around or something. Yeah, the um, I guess the the idea here is that we want to accelerate uh, the research and development of some of the subcomponents of the technology that yeah. can, um, if progress is made, um, you know, for example, in uh, microfluidics or in yeah. uh, you know, nanopore sequencing or optical sequencing or yeah. um, one of the um, these uh, other kind of pieces of the technology yeah. that that allow for the whole thing end to end to become mm -hmm. faster and cheaper, uh, then, you know, we want to to do whatever we can to make progress there. Cool. And are there any major blockers where it's like, you know, this component or like this process, this is just like the key thing that we still haven't quite figured out? I think we're still working to identify what the tr the true bottlenecks are. Um, there are, uh, I guess, some higher order things that um, obviously are are blockers. There's the cost that I mentioned, the turnaround time. There's the complexity as well. Um, it requires uh, you know skilled labor to be able to um, take a crude sample and then prepare it and actually sequence it and do something useful with it. And ideally, what we want is to just take that crude sample, as mentioned, stick it in a cartridge, put it in a box and press a button and then walk away. Yeah. Um, it should, you know, take like less than a minute to accomplish that yeah. um, and should be, you know, able to be done by someone who has, you know, very little or no training. Um, but I, I guess at the more fundamental level, the, uh, the constraints that we're um, trying to understand are pretty complex and there are a lot of interdependencies between them. So there's a, a lot of work uh, still to be done to kind of disentangle uh, yeah. each of the each of those kind of bottlenecks. And is there a reason this kind of work hasn't been done before? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I think probably some of this work has been done in the R&D labs of some of these like larger sequencing companies. Um, but I, I don't know if like, for example, um, Oxford Nanopore has uh, developed uh, the Voltrax system for automated uh, sample preparation. And I, I know um, there have been folks who've been thinking about, you know, completely integrated devices. And um, yeah, I, I guess the problem we're trying to solve, though, is one that not a lot of sequencing companies are tackling. Um, most of sequencing, most of the sequencing industry is uh, driven by oncology. And so there's a lot of... Um, and, and also uh, assumes that you have some sort of like centralized sequencing operation. Um, and so those kind of constraints drive technology development in a, a slightly different direction. Whereas what we're thinking about is um, ubiquitous, you know, highly distributed sequencing for pathogens, uh, which is a, a slightly different use case and um, has potentially uh, different implications for what pieces of the technology need to be accelerated. So it sounds like the way that maybe um, you're approaching this or we're approaching this is like an angle which involves different parts of the problem than like individual sequencing companies would want because our like overall goal is different. D does that seem correct? I think that's right. Yeah. I think um, trying to integrate everything end to end is one way that um, our approaches may be different uh, as well as the actual like location of deployment and the... Um, the purpose of the sequencing uh, as well. Does this become super difficult because different parts of the problem um, are at different stages of being close to completion? 
I think that's right. Yeah, I think there are some things that seem to work pretty well, like um, DNA, RNA purification, and then other things that, um, you know, there's still a lot of progress to be made. Yeah, I guess the thing I'm wondering is if I'm like, if I make, you know, medical devices um, and I come up with the tech which drives down the cost of sequencing, mm. well, there's going to be a ton of buyers. Like there's a huge reason for me to try to do that. I take it in, when you're doing your road mapping research, you're not doing that because you have like dreams of making a ton of money. You're doing it because it just seems really important. Yeah. So why do like, you know, these kind of non-profit like interests need to step in and do this job? Why isn't it just being like fully, um, you know, just saturated by, by the companies that could like make money off it? Yeah. Uh, I guess my take is that there's this sort of valley of death between um, research and emerging technologies and then uh, things that are actually commercializable um, and taking things from like a low technology readiness level uh, out to things that are mature enough to be deployed commercially is very difficult and uh, many technologies don't actually make it uh, past that gap. Right. So going from the lab to the, the market is... Um, uh, yeah, I think a lot, a lot more difficult um, than maybe um, a lot of people appreciate. Yeah. So I guess you might break that down, or at least I'm kind of thinking of different ways that could be true. So one reason might be like uncertainty. So if we're not totally confident that with this like huge R&D spend, we'll actually get the thing out the other end, then we might like back away from doing it. Um Another might be time, so maybe just we expect it to take a very long time, and it's very hard to think over, um, or it's hard to plan over long timescales. And then, like a third reason, might be a kind of free ridery thing, where if you expect, you know, a competitor to do the research, then maybe it's in your interest to wait for them to do it. But they're thinking the same thing. Um, I don't know which one of those sounds most accurate, or am I missing some like extra thing? Yeah, I think it's it's maybe. Uh... A bit of all of the above. I think like existing uh, organizational structures aren't really incentivized to solve this problem, and yeah. it's a little bit more of like this um, uh, ad hoc process as to what makes it through. Uh, but in our case, we care quite a bit about this differential technology development. We we see this emerging technology, and we know that we want this to be deployed ubiquitously, and so. Um, in this case, it makes sense to uh, try to deploy funding to uh, make substantial progress in the technology. Um, and I think the the reason that we wouldn't like the, the the reason we care about driving down the cost and turnaround time so that it's actually something that's um, commercially viable is just that it wouldn't be feasible for a ubiquitous um, sequencing system to be completely philanthropically funded. Um, it, uh, we do need it to be driven by private markets um, to some degree, or I guess to a large degree. Um, and I think the, the best place for the application of uh, philanthropic dollars is in uh, accelerating the research and development so that that can then be possible later. Yep. Can you say something about what it means to care about differential technology development? Like, just what does that what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so I guess there are some technologies that we view as uh, inherently defensive, uh, and others that could be viewed as uh, potentially more offensive. And what we want to do is um, 
I guess, uh, on, on one end, uh, deter the development of things that are purely offensive, like biological weapons. Um, and then in the middle, uh, for things that are dual use, um, maybe you want to kind of push them to the left so that they're more inherently defensive, or you kind of um, try to ensure that technologies enter the world in an order that's uh, kind of inherently safe. Yep. So for example, right. you know, control systems entering the world before nuclear weapons. Right. Um, and then uh, all the way in the, I guess, other end where things are purely defensive, um, uh, or at least we suspect, strongly suspect yeah. that they are, uh, you want to accelerate the development so that, uh, as mentioned, you know, we can get uh, get those things out into the world uh, before um, they're, they're needed. Got it. So you want to avoid like the window in which it's potentially too easy to like do a lot of damage and too difficult to defend against it. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That makes a ton of sense. Was there anything you want, want to add, Jeremy? Oh, I was just going to ask sort of how, um, yeah, the development of um, metagenomic surveillance helps with differential attack development. If you could like spell that out a little bit more. Yeah, um, I guess metagenomic sequencing is a fundamental technology for um, fundamental uh, defensive technology. It's um, can be used for this uh, early warning uh, capability. Um, can also be used to. Um, so I guess the, the thing we care about with early warning is both detecting and also characterizing emerging pathogens. Uh, and once we've characterized a pathogen, we can then use that information to develop medical countermeasures. Um, and uh, and the early detection uh, can potentially bias the capability to contain a pathogen if we act early enough and if the characteristics of the pathogen um, are not prohibitive uh, to containment. Um, and then should it not be containable, it buys us enough time to take other measures. There seems like there could also be like this third thing, which is that having this sort of ubiquitous system means that... Um, people who might want to develop dangerous things are less inclined to do so because it's easier to get caught. Um, That's does right. this sort of also like play into this and does this play into the like differential technology development in sort of minimizing the offensive stuff that's then developed? I think that's that's absolutely right. There's very much this uh, deterrence by denial um, kind of dynamic mm -hmm. here. You can imagine reaching a world in which the balance tilts towards defense. In other words, in some sense, you know, uh, you guys succeed in this differential tech development thing in terms of biosafety. And then um, we don't see any kind of crazy, like engineered pathogens, for instance. And some people might point to that as evidence that this wasn't really worth worrying about in the first place. But the thing that Janvi just said suggests that that might not actually be like appropriate. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, we would love to be in that world, right, where we build this system and it's and <laughs> there aren't any threats that that mean it's like strictly necessary. But uh, I think even in that world, um, this system would do a lot to suppress the transmission of pathogens if you can um, track their spread and provide uh, public health better situational awareness, yeah. so that they're not flying blind as they were yeah. during this pandemic uh, and continue uh, to be. Yeah. You know, they're. Uh, pathogens uh, all across the spectrum of, uh, um, you know, uh, how, how much we want, we want to worry about them uh, and uh, doing whatever we can to stop the spread of all of them uh, is ideal. And I think if we um, are considering the worst case pathogens and designing for them, uh, my suspicion is that we'll end up doing a lot to suppress the spread of, of all the rest of them. Yeah. 
sounds pretty sensible to me. Um, I guess I kind of asked about this when I asked about COVID. But one thing I'm curious about is, let's just imagine it's like 2050. We have fairly ubiquitous um, sequencing in place. So we have something like a kind of Sentinel set up. Um, and like perhaps we're unlucky enough that a fairly dangerous like novel pathogen emerges. Um, how does this like play out kind of in the best case, like from it being spotted for the first time, like what, what kind of could come next? Yeah. Um, so, so just make sure I understand this yeah, is yeah. like imagining we have this ideal system deployed. We have the ideal system. Yeah. yeah. How does it like actually react after the point at which it first like picks up on something like new? Yeah. So uh, let's assume that there's this high consequence pathogen um, that has emerged in humans and we have this index case. They uh, can walk into uh, a clinic, um, maybe they're symptomatic and um, it's been you know only a few hours that they've been uh, infectious. Um, and when their samples are run through a uh, uh, diagnostic system uh, and it's, uh, you know, uh, the care provider has, uh, gotten the results back from the system and identified that there's something potentially concerning here uh, and that they should be isolated, then I guess that's when the reporting step kicks in. Um, you can imagine that the uh, diagnostic device that the sample is run through um, not only provides the diagnosis to the care provider, but also automates the reporting step. Um, so right. um, if something passes a given threshold for how much we might uh, be concerned about it, mm. then uh, it can automatically notify relevant public health authorities at the you know, yep. local, state, uh, federal, or international levels. Um, and uh, that's when the re response step um, kicks in. And uh, right now that response capability is um, largely the responsibility of, uh, of governments. And yep. I imagine that will be the case uh, for the foreseeable future. But... Um, there are also companies that are working on providing um, not just advice to governments on response capabilities, but um, also um, providing some of those capabilities themselves. Cool. And then I guess in practice, what could response look like? I guess isolating is a pretty key thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, isolating the person, there's also, uh, I guess, ring vaccination um, is one potential. So if we're, if we're kind of looking in the far future and... Um, let's say we have the ability to um, rapidly develop uh, and deploy medical countermeasures um, against even given threat. So as soon as we detect it, uh, characterize it, then uh, you might uh, want to then vaccinate everyone who has come in contact with that person and everyone uh, who's come in contact with them uh, kind of as like a preventative measure to prevent further spread. Um, that's one possibility. There's... Um, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, in, in order to determine who uh, you might want to vaccinate, there's, um, you know, some some tracing you might want to do, which probably will look pretty different from traditional contact tracing. But yeah. Hang on a sec. So I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but you did mention, oh, so we'll just like vaccinate everyone once we spot the, the new pathogen. Ah, uh, yeah. So I thought that it takes years to develop a, a vaccine. So what could be... What could be going on here that like allows us to create vaccines so quickly? Yeah, so I, I guess um, to clarify, not vaccinate everyone, but um, vaccinate those that this person sure, has come, sure, yeah. come in contact with. Um, and um, so, yeah, I guess we already saw that um, 
with the, the time between you know getting the sequence and developing the candidate mRNA vaccine was on the order of days um, for uh, for Moderna, uh, for example, and. Um, DARPA has a couple of programs right now. Uh, one is called the Pandemic Prevention Platform. Uh, another one is called uh, Nucleic Acids On Demand Worldwide, um, which are kind of focused on this um, mobile forward deployed uh, medical countermeasure development capability okay. where uh, you could um, develop and, and synthesize nucleic acid uh, MCMs, yeah. um, you know, anywhere in the world. Uh, and so uh, with that capability, um, you can imagine that once you have a sequence, you can go from that to a uh, candidate um, uh, vaccine or, or therapeutic uh, in pretty short order. Sweet. Awesome. Okay. Is there anything else on the sequencing stuff from your end, Jamvi, that we missed? I feel like something that might be worth mentioning here is kind of the, to go back to the like different types of sequencing we mentioned, um, there is like there is this idea that we might kind of want them to exist at the same time to provide this sort of defense with where where when there are holds in some certain types of sequencing or metagenomic sequencing, uh, they're sort of picked up by others. So one way to think about this is that so if we had passive environmental surveillance going on all the time, so uh, in wastewater, we have sequencing devices uh, that are picking up sort of any pathogen that is going on within a population. Um, but once in a while, you know, it misses these, there's maybe not high enough concentrations or something. Um, we then also have clinical surveillance going on in the background. Um, and so when people are ill, if enough people go to the hospital and are sort of metagenomically sequenced, depending on how far <laughs> into the future we're thinking of this, um, then it is picked up there. Um, and then the third one that we mentioned being Sentinel, um, yeah, we, we, we also have these other sort of passive um, systems that are looking for asymptomatic people. So the idea is kind of that we're like covering all our bases here and that um, even if some systems fail to pick up um, that there is like a disease of importance here, um, other systems do catch them. Yeah, definitely would uh, absolutely echo that. I think um, as much as possible, we want comprehensive layered defense capabilities. Uh, and that's layered not just in the context uh, that they're deployed, so environmental clinical and sentinel, but also um, as we uh, kind of improve capabilities, deploying the technology in phases. Um, so, you know, deploy uh, what what we have, you know, a few years from now and then keep that operational and then a few years later deploy uh, what we have at that stage as well um, across each of the contexts. Yeah. And then like also in the far future, um, there's this like fun idea of having sort of individuals doing their own metagenomic sequencing. Um, one cool piece of technology that Oxford Nanopore Technologies has out right now is called the Smidge Ion, um, which is this little uh, sequencer that you attach onto your phone. Um, yeah, and I think this is the idea of something that they, that they want to develop. And uh, yeah, I think these are also like having people sort of passively testing themselves constantly is like also an idea I think we're really excited about. Cool. Let's talk a bit about research funding then. So you touched on it already. It does seem pretty unusual to be doing this thing where you spot a technology, you can anticipate that there's going to be a market for the technology, and yet you you still want to like figure out how to accelerate it, even from like um, not from a profit motive, but just from like some kind of you know altruistic motive. Yes, yeah, so I kind of want to talk about weird ways of funding research a bit more. But I guess a natural um, first question is just how does this kind of useful, somewhat speculative research 
typically get funded these days? Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, before I answer that, um, w one thing I want to um, touch on is uh, I, I think we're actually not certain that um, this ubiquitous sequencing system is something that um, can be commercially viable, right. um, but that we think the best way to accomplish that will be to uh, drive down cost, turn cost and turnaround time so that yep. that can be possible. But yeah, um, there's, uh, I, I guess, a, a range of existing structures for uh, high risk, uh, you consider, I guess, like high variance yeah, um, yeah. sort of uh, research and development. Um, DARPA calls this, uh, I guess, surprise. Uh, you know, they right. look look for uh, technological surprise, um, and and yeah, Dar DARPA and uh, the other um, ARPAs are mm -hmm. um, kind of the the primary way that that kind of uh, funding happens now. So uh, DARPA will, uh, you know, hire program managers who look at technologies that depend on components that. Um, have only, I guess, emerged in in you know recent years and yep. put together uh, very ambitious project portfolios that uh, can make progress there. Um, this is at you know very low technology readiness levels. There's a um, this uh, scale that was developed by NASA um, and is now currently used throughout the defense and aerospace industry yep. um, that describes uh, maturity of technologies. Um, ranging from zero to nine uh, that kind of describes, uh, you know, all the way from basic research all the way to, you know, uh, real world operation. And um, the um, organizations like DARPA, IARPA. Um, and just to be clear, this is so advanced research projects in the US. Correct. So like government funded. Correct. And often yeah. for like defense that's applications. Yeah, yeah, defense and intelligence. Yeah, so uh, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and then IARPA is uh, the same, but for intelligence. Um, and th that's where I think like a majority of the truly ambitious um, projects get their funding. Um, within uh, corporations, uh, within industry, there are also um, pretty exciting R&D projects happening. Um, the incentives there are slightly different in that um, they're looking for things that can they can take to market um, pretty quickly. Um, the it's I guess yeah for some of the um, like moonshot lab uh, type organizations at for example some of the big tech companies they have a slightly longer time horizon but even then it's on the order of you know like a few years before they want to try to bring something to market. So um, at least you know for some of them and uh, this. Um, ability to kind of take this long time horizon and be very ambitious yeah. and uh, make investments is uh, something that uh, is, I, yeah, I guess there's, there's kind of um, this gap uh, of organizations, you know, outside of academia and industry and government that um, can accomplish that. What is the timescale like for, for DARPA and government organizations for this kind of a thing? Yeah. Um, I, I guess my understanding is that uh, they take a, a pretty um, long-term view. So I guess the technologies that they look at uh, depend on components that are um, fairly recently developed. And that I think, um, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I, I don't actually uh, know whether it's, uh, there's this like a specific time period that they're looking at for some of the projects. I think it probably depends uh, on the given project, but, you know, looking, you know, uh, decades out at some of the uh, most exciting emerging technologies. Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to ask a bit about academic institutions. So if I'm at, you know, college, I like hit on something pretty interesting in my PhD. Maybe I want to start some kind of spinoff that um, lives in the university. Like what's the funding story normally going to look like there? Yeah. Um, the, so I, I guess if you're in the US and you have uh, an exciting technology that could be commercializable uh, or some other discovery um, and you're starting in academia, there are a, a couple of types of grants you can apply for from um, the uh, SBIR um, program. There's, yeah, I guess both, um, the Small Business Administration has both the SBIR and SDTR programs. Um, uh, and um, those allow for, um, so SBIR is a small business innovation research, um, and SDTR is a small business technology transfer. Um, these uh, these allow uh, kind of principal investigators and, and you know small teams of researchers to uh, get grants um, from the U.S. federal government to uh, develop their technology towards uh, the goal of commercializing. Um, often. Uh, with the aim of uh, providing these technologies to government customers. Okay. I am presuming that these um, grants have maybe like a shorter time scale attached to them as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, t typically uh, a couple of years. Okay, cool. Got yeah. it. Um, I don't know if this is right, but it, it sounds to me like there's, um, yeah, if we're looking at these three groups where there's academia, there's like commercial enterprise, and there's like government projects, with academia um, and commercial projects, they both have sort of short timescales. Um, but with commercial product projects, there's like, you want to produce something that is like kind of sellable or something within a couple of years. But with academia, you can do research that's um, sort of very basic. And that sort of stacked on top of other grants that are a couple of years can end up being like quite long bits of time to do like fundamental research or research that leads to to sort of more interesting conclusions over time. So it also seems like kind of a longer term investment. Um, but sort of the mix between these two sounds like that then becomes government grants. Does that sound kind of correct? Yeah, I, I think uh, academia certainly allows for um, this kind of ambitious, like longer term thinking, things that um, are you know pre-commercial, could potentially be you know public goods, very... Um, focused on conceptual breakthroughs or open-ended exploration. Um, but I think some of the limitations um, make it such that it's it's difficult to take things from academia and, and actually um, develop them outside of that context. So uh, there's, yeah, not, not a lot of, uh, I guess, support uh, for the... Um, post-project transition uh, to commercialization. There's um, uh, also, I think, like a slightly different uh, working environment than what you might expect from uh, a startup or a corporate uh, R&D lab. Um, and uh, with a kind of, and that structure kind of comes along with like a different set of incentives. Cool. So I guess just to take stock. So we're interested in, like you mentioned, kind of pre-commercial public goodsy um, research projects, the kind of project which you need presumably a bunch of funding over a long-ish timescale to really get off the ground. And 
you were just describing the like funding landscape, and it sounds like okay, there are ways to do this with government grants inside academia, but the working environment is um, a little different sometimes. Sometimes to transition like to something commercializable, like to exit, can be a bit like different. Then you have like corporate R and D kind of labs, but they operate over often shorter timescales. If you want the longer time scale, like ambitious stuff, then maybe the best place are the advanced research projects inside the US. But then maybe you need to like be able to tell a story about defense or intelligence applications, and that's not going to apply to like every useful technology that's just like good for the world. Which leads to this question, right? Which is, are there any new, interesting, better ways that these exciting or useful technologies can can get funded? Yeah, so uh, uh, Adam Marblestone at Convergent Research, uh, which is part of uh, Schmidt Futures, uh, has put forth this concept of focused research organizations. Uh, and the idea there is that it's a uh, new kind of structure that, uh, like a startup, has um, this you know close-knit, fast-moving, mission-driven kind of organization led by a CEO, um, but they take on very risky projects um, that you might expect um, out of uh, more of like a, a DARPA um, funded type uh, project. Uh, they, um, uh, I guess, pretty crucially, um, as different from, you know, a corporate lab or from academia, they uh, are kind of uh, shielded from a lot of the incentives from those structures and so can focus just on this goal. Um, and it, it's sort of like this um, fixed duration, time limited effort as well, yeah. uh, where you say, you know, we have this like very clear goal that we want to achieve. Um, and we're uh, going to spend, you know, this you know duration of time attacking this problem uh, in a this yeah, very uh, focused manner. Um, yeah, definitely would would encourage you to have Adam on the podcast and, and talk more about that. FROs. Sounds great. Yeah. I guess one quick question to follow up on that. So you said that Focus research organizations um, shield you from certain incentives. Um, I guess you're implying that these could be like kind of distortionary or bad incentives, but yeah, what exactly are, are they? Yeah, so I guess in a corporate lab, you're um, you have shareholder incentives yeah. that um, means the the things that you develop um, not only need to get to market fairly soon, but they also need to do well on the market. They need to be things that. Um, uh, there's um, a significant amount of demand for, and also that aren't like too outside of the realm of what uh, the company does. Uh, so you can imagine, like in, uh, for example, an aerospace company that's developing, you know, in like their R and D lab, potentially developing medical devices. You know, that could be, you know, really exciting work. Um, they could be making uh, really great progress, but if the shareholders don't want to see that, they just want like you know this stable, um, you know, aerospace. Uh, company in their um their investment portfolio yeah. and they see this company doing like weird r d things uh <laughs> they're not gonna be super happy with that so they're um yeah kind of weird incentives that um you have to keep in mind there okay this reminds me of a mission web sketch um set inside the garnier 
laboratoire where they're like coming up with perfumes and then someone like discovers a cure for Alzheimer's and then like Monsieur Garnier walks in and learns this news and like smashes the test tube because it's not like relevant for like the Garnier yeah. you know, sleek and shine range this year or something. Um, sounds about so, yeah, right. Similar yeah. idea. So I guess earlier we spoke a little bit about um, sequencing things and detecting um, outbreaks early before they become really bad. Um, but there are some worlds where these outbreaks um, are so bad that we might not be able to contain them. Um, what is the difference in terms of what we do uh, with an outbreak with an outbreak that we might be able to contain and an outbreak that we might not be able to contain? Yeah. So if we detect something uh, early and characterize it and identify that it's actually something worth worrying about, but for whatever reason are not able to contain it, whether that's um, a result of uh, institutional uh, capacity for response or whether it's some characteristic of the pathogen or something else, um, the hope is that that extra time we buy with the early detection allows us to... Uh, take other actions um, that kind of guard against worst case scenarios. Um, and those are, uh, I guess, both getting people to a position of relative safety and um, working on developing medical countermeasures to deal with the threat. Um, and I guess there are, you can think of, you know, getting people to a place where they can work safely in a couple, a few different ways. Um, broadly uh, sort of think about this. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you, you, there's like non-pharmaceutical interventions like in general, um, and then I guess maybe a subset of that is like physical defenses from pathogens. So that could be anything that encapsulates a person and keeps them separate from threats in the uh, external environment. Um, I guess the most obvious form of that would be PPE, um, you know, something you wear on your face or over your whole body. Um, and then I guess more generally, there's um, ways to encapsulate multiple people. Um, these can be uh, buildings that uh, offer similar sorts of protection, but um, kind of, uh, yeah, in, uh, in a context that allows people to sort of um, function normally, or I guess re relatively normally. Um, so... Um, I guess, yeah, one way of thinking about this is uh, if you consider a BSL-4 lab, which is designed to contain um, the most lethal pathogens and prevent them from escaping, if you sort of inverted that and treated the outside world as the high containment area and the interior space as the uh, safe area, um, that is uh, one way of thinking about how to design such a structure. Uh, and... Um, you could actually imagine that uh, you might want the people who are developing medical med medical countermeasures to be um, kept in this position of relative safe safety, so that they can um, work on uh, you know, developing and and uh, testing uh, MCMs and have access to stockpiled supplies. Um, you can imagine in uh, perhaps some of the uh, more catastrophic um, scenarios that supply chains might not be functioning and physical security can't be guaranteed. And so then how do people actually get access to the resources uh, that they need to develop MCMs? Um, and you may want to be able to provide that for them uh, in such a structure. 
And MCM, to be clear, is medical countermeasures? Medical countermeasure, yeah. Vaccines, therapeutics. Got it, yeah. got it. So you want to find, I guess, the most important people and facilities for getting things back on track and really make sure that they are effectively isolated against the pandemic in this kind of worst case scenario? That's the thinking, yeah. Got it. Um, okay, so I guess we're, we're talking about you know worlds in which... Unfortunately, it's too late to contain or, or isolate a pandemic in one place. And perhaps it's like a especially virulent. So it's fairly worst case. And then you're describing like refuges as a kind of last line of defense or something. Yeah. So can you just say more about what these refuges might look like? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess there's uh, maybe a, a few different... Uh, when we say refuges, I think we mean maybe a... a few different things um and it's maybe worth disentangling some of those so the the one that i described is maybe like a countermeasures uh type refuge where we have uh scientific personnel who can develop mcms in a position of relative safety um there are other types that um you know are hardened against maybe a wider range of threats outside of just biological threats. Um, maybe they contain uh, information or tools that's, that people can use um, once they reemerge. But I guess I'll, I'll kind of leave that aside for now and talk just about um, medical countermeasures uh, type refuges. And um, yeah, so I guess w what would those look like? Uh, you, you can imagine that um, for each of the inputs to the structure, um, cause, so those can be... Um, air, water, food, yep. other supplies, and then obviously the people yep. who are going in, you want to be able to ensure, uh, or I guess you want to be able to uh, decontaminate um, yep. uh, and then verify that that those inputs are uh, decontaminated. And sorry, just to be clear, are we talking about something like a, a large building, for instance? Yeah, it yep. could just be, you know, like a, um, a normal building, but it has... Um, yeah, so certain features that ensure that pathogens outside uh, can be kept out. Um, and so that, that might look like um, having, you know, at the entrance for people, you have uh, airlocks with, um, you know, sterilized water showers as you enter. And then uh, once you are inside, you have um, kind of isolated uh, living quarters that allow you to quarantine. And then to enter the interior of the structure, you, you know, put on some PPE. Um, that is, you know, resistant to chemical decontamination. You can go through a, an airlock with a chemical shower. And then if you want to go back outside, um, you know, you can uh, go through the, the other airlock and uh, go through another, another chemical shower. And so I guess, yeah, there, there's like a whole range of things you can do to, um, obviously you want to screen people before they enter and make sure that they're uh, not infected. Um, and you can do that using some of the sequencing technology uh, we were talking about before um, in theory. And um and then in order to get all of the supplies in, um, obviously you want to have things stockpiled in there for um, uh, particularly things that allow you to um, uh, develop MCMs. Um, uh, but also you'll need to bring things in and uh, deal with kind of a uh, range of possible transmission routes um, that you might, you might want to guard against. Yeah. In terms of the supplies in these... Um refuges for preparing um mcms what kinds of things are like easiest to overlook that just seem really important hmm. that that's a good question i mean probably uh, given that these would be uh 
environments with limited resources, you wouldn't have access to, you know, like the full suite of uh, pharmaceutical development um, uh, kind of tools and uh, and equipment and 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 uh, people uh, with the relevant expertise. Um, probably the most important thing would just be the capacity to synthesize uh, DNA um, to develop nucleic acid-based uh, therapeutics. Um, obviously, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have uh, more robust capabilities than those, but um, yeah. that's, yeah, probably the, the bare minimum. Yeah, I guess another question is, when I think of, you know, quote-unquote refuges, my mind goes towards, like, post-apocalyptic bunkers, right? It's like lead-clad, lined with tins of baked beans. Yeah. Um, yeah, how... <laughs> How are how are those kind of like pictures of you know bunkers different from what would actually like be realistically best? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what um, what your threat model is. I think some of those kind of more uh, intense looking bunkers are um, hardened against uh, things that look more like. Um, you know, nuclear weapons. And, and obviously, uh, many of those, if not all of them, uh, would not be hardened against like a direct uh, strike from a nuclear warhead. But um, they're, uh, um, they're, they're, I guess, kind of like designed for a different, uh, different type of threat. And um, maybe the thing that we want is not, you know, just one structure that is hardened against every possible threat, but maybe things that are kind of purpose built for different, uh, different things that we're worried about. I was just going to say, there seems like there's like a range of intensities here where you could imagine that some of these things that you've proposed could exist kind of passively, um, sort of within the homes we already live in. So sort of like ventilation um, and yeah, having strengthened PPE around um, in, in the case where, where sort of any bad outbreak starts to happen. Um, and then there are these, yeah, sort of the, the thing that Finn mentioned, this like more intensive type bunker and there seems to be like a, a trade-off in terms of how bad the thing is and how intense the uh intervention or 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 bunker seems like um does that is that true i think that's that's probably right yeah there, there certainly are built environment improvements that one could make in just normal buildings like normal office buildings schools schools would probably be you know one of the um uh one of the best places to, to do that, given how high transmission rates are in, in schools, uh, to just retrofit uh, HVAC systems with HEPA filters or um, upper air UV disinfection. Um, there, yeah, there's a, a range of uh, range of lower cost um, retrofits that that you can do for existing structures, and uh, those those definitely seem worthwhile. But I think yeah, for some of the more extreme threats and extreme scenarios then something more robust is probably needed yeah i mean tell me if i'm wrong but it does seem like there are a bunch of low-hanging fruit with just the the retrofitting of existing buildings right so a hepa filter is like just a block of sponge with a fan driving air through it right so yeah. um presumably it's not super expensive to just install that permanently in um hvac systems ventilation systems um and then you mentioned so something to do with UV that I hadn't heard of? What's, what's the idea there as well? Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess the, the idea with, with UV is that irradiation can, um, 
like damage and, and destroy a lot of pathogens. Um, and you can accomplish that with UV. Um, kind of on the more intense end of the spectrum, you can also do that with gamma irradiation. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, th I think you're. I think you're totally right. I think that. Uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in retrofitting existing facilities. There have been um, yeah, a few different organizations that have published uh, guides to retrofitting buildings um, to protect, protect against um, biological threats. Um, so yeah, I guess there's like system recommissioning where you can do airflow testing and, and balancing calibrating sensors, um, testing dampers, et cetera, uh, tightening the envelope uh, of the building to eliminate leaks, um, pressure-driven airflow control, uh, that sort of thing. And there's, um, I, I guess what, one of the larger expenses with retrofitting, um, HVAC systems, for example, is that yeah. if you put a really good filter, um, in the system, it requires a lot more power to drive air through the filter. Um, so there's, there's kind of an added expense there. And, um, as mentioned, yeah, there's, there's also a trade-off, you know, if you want to, um, reduce your, your power consumption cost, then, uh, you know, maybe using like a, um, a filter that doesn't, uh, that has, I guess like, yeah, a lower, lower percentage of yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, there, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. No, that makes sense. Maybe this is like too convenient, but, um, also it just seems really good to have cleaner air in general. So like, seems like there are some effects on cognition from, um, carbon particulates and from CO2 and, could it just be a win-win that if you just get serious, if we finally get serious about making sure our air is clean in the same way that we like just assume that all our water is like pure and clean? Yeah, that there's just like multiple reasons that could that could be good. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, so if you if you think about um, the way buildings are constructed, uh, everything is built with fire suppression in mind. Yeah. Uh, right. There are a lot of expenses that go into constructing uh, buildings that ensure that. Mm. Um, you know, uh, a, a fire in one place can't just, you know, burn down the, the whole structure. The furniture uh, we use is, you know, has uh, fire retardant materials inside of it. There are all these expenses that we build in, uh, assuming that fire suppression is something that is an absolute necessity. We have no such equivalent for pathogen transmission suppression. Yeah. And I think we need to come up with standards for uh, our built environment that take that into account, that ensure that our, our air is clean, uh, and that, um, there are, uh, you know, tools that, uh, ensure that, uh, people can be kept healthy, uh, yeah. inside of a building. Yeah. This isn't me doing serious history, but you can imagine some gloss on the way things happened where before, you know, something like germ theory of disease and, you know, appreciating, um, the importance of, purifying water it kind of would have seemed maybe a bit like ott to care so much about for instance having standards for like pure or clean water yeah and also all the expenses involved in like setting up proper sanitation systems and sewage systems um and clearly nowadays it's pretty obvious that this stuff matters and presumably you could anticipate some similar shift in just expectations as to what is like you know, bare minimum kind of important with respect to air as well. Like it seems like maybe that's, we're kind of at the inflection point of that kind of transition now that it's actually feasible to do stuff about it. I think that's right. Yeah, I, I would definitely be excited to see, um, you know, a lot more work on figuring out 
uh, I guess, what standards we need to set, both in terms of the quality of the error and then the tools that we use to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And then once we figure that out, proliferating those standards and uh, making it such that you know all new buildings uh, need to keep that in mind. Cool. So we've been talking about, roughly speaking, disaster preparedness on a kind of institutional level. So how do we make sure you know our buildings are resilient? How do we come up with plans in advance to use them? Um, but you can also do things to prepare on a personal level, right? At least a few things. So I was wondering if you could speak to any of the kind of um, quick or relatively inexpensive things that individuals can do to just get prepared um, for, you know, low likelihood, but um, potential worst case um, scenarios. Yeah, and one um, obvious example, unfortunately, is that at the time of speaking, you know, it might, it might pay, especially if you live in a big city, to just take like a moment to consider how to prepare for um, a nuclear exchange in particular, not because it looks, you know, extremely likely, but just because the possibility is currently fairly kind of all too all too salient. So yeah, what if you could speak to disaster preparedness in general and then to that specific example as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, I guess for better or for worse, uh, over the course of the pandemic, we've seen personal disaster preparedness uh, come more into the mainstream. And um, there are uh, a lot of, you know, kind of common sense things that you can do to prepare for disasters in general. Mm -hmm. And I think those things apply to probably, you know, like 98% of the, you know, very roughly speaking, of the scenarios you might want to, to guard against. Um, and um, I'll, I'll note that, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in uh, nuclear exchanges uh, <laughs> whatsoever, but I think there are probably some things that you can do there as well that that are pretty similar and then some things you might want to do there specifically um uh, i guess at a high level um you want to make sure that you've got the basics taken care of that you have sufficient uh food and water supplies at home to be insulated from any shocks to to those uh, supplies uh, make sure you have you know medical supplies so that um, if needed you can um, self-administered um medical care, um, there's, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, range of, of things beyond that, that you can think about, but I think those are kind of the, the most important ones. And then, uh, there's also this question of, you know, do you, in the event of a disaster, do you stay at home, uh, or do you go elsewhere? And usually I think the right answer is to, to stay at home unless there's like some strong reason that you need to leave. Um, it's, uh, pretty, I guess, disruptive to uproot yourself and, and go somewhere else. Um, you're, I guess, yeah, it makes it harder to make sure you have all the supplies that you need. You have the, you know, kind of support network you need. Um, but in some scenarios, you know, it could be worthwhile provided that um, you're able to ensure you have access to all those, uh, all, the, all the resources that you need. Um, in general, for disaster preparedness, I would point people to, there's a really good website called theprepared.com. Um, it's just kind of... Uh, very, you know, rational, common sense, disaster preparedness advice. Um, they do a pretty good job uh, of that. Um, there's also, uh, if at least, yeah, the, my context is in the U.S., uh, FEMA um, has uh, some resources online on how to prepare for different types of disasters um, just at uh, ready.gov. Uh, is a good place to go. And then for nuclear exchange preparedness in particular, 
a little more complicated there. Um, I did recently see a really good uh, EA forum post by uh, another Finn, uh, Finn uh, Adamson, it, it looks like. Yep. Um, and the title My of this rivals. post. Yeah. <laughs> the the anti-Finn. Um, the title of this post is uh, just a Nuclear Preparedness Guide. Um, and this is a very well-researched, um, thorough post. Uh, and I can see that there's uh, a lot of information that has been drawn from some of these... Um, uh, guides from from FEMA and uh, and otherwise. So um, certainly would would recommend taking a look at that. Super, and we'll link to all those things in the uh, in the write up. Yeah, Ajay. So it sounds like um, there's a range of really cool sort of biosecurity interventions you're working on. Um, but one question I had is, I'm kind of curious as to how you became interested in all this stuff and what you were working on before and what that what that did to sort of lead to this. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my background is in electrical engineering. I had spent some time, uh, doing medical device research in, uh, neural microsystems for a little while. And then afterwards, uh, non-invasive human computer interfaces, um, had spent a few years, uh, at a startup that I'd co-founded, um, with some good friends making wearable devices, um, with some customers in the U S federal government and in the private sector. Um, and then, um, most recently spent uh, a few years uh, actually at uh, Amazon, both uh, on um, the AWS side working on their machine learning platform and then also uh, within uh, their Moonshot Lab, uh, which is called Grand Challenge, uh, working on a project in healthcare and life sciences. Um, And uh, as far as how I got into the biosecurity work specifically, it was really at the start of the pandemic um, that uh, I was, you know, j- sitting there uh, in my apartment in in quarantine, trying to figure out what the hell happened. Uh, how is <laughs> how is this possible that uh, a new pathogen can emerge and we don't have uh, an early warning? We don't we don't have any capability to guard against it. Uh, I just kind of assumed. Uh, in my naivety, that there were equivalent systems to you know, what we have for hurricane uh, early warnings or other types of natural disasters. And when I uh, started doing uh, you know some some digging and and reading about it online, I very quickly realized that no such system exists. Uh, and I just thought that was crazy. And <laughs> it, it, at first blush, you know, I, I thought, okay, you know, it seems like maybe all the I guess I sort of started from the thinking, like, let's assume that there's uh, a high consequence pathogen that emerges in humans. What do we need to do about it? Um, Like, how can we stop it as quickly as possible? And that led me to looking into these, um, you know, pathogen agnostic diagnostics, which then led me to metagenomic sequencing and spent some time trying to figure out, you know, can we just build something right now that can be deployed? Um, And uh, after a little while realized that um, that's not possible and, um, spent some time talking to uh, to folks that uh, ADK put me in touch with and and others and um, that's yeah eventually you know what what led me to to the work I'm doing now. Cool. So here's one question I had. It sounds like your background, as in your academic background, is primarily not in anything related to biology, or at least not centrally related. So it sounds like it's mostly an engineering background. Um, yeah, that's right. It also sounds like you've pretty successfully switched from various kind of engineering flavored projects into working on um, doing research in biosecurity. 
So I'm curious how easy that, that was to do. How easy was that, that switch to make? Yeah, um, I, I guess it's, it's, it's sort of uh, hard to say. I'm not sure what, um, what someone might be able to sort of re replicate in, in the, the steps that I took. But I will say that in general, um, biosecurity does need many more people with engineering backgrounds. And I think that's probably why it um, was possible for me to do that. Um, there are uh, you know, a lot of things that need to be built um, to uh, kind of develop defenses against biological threats. Uh, kind of as mentioned, there's this concept of an early warning system for emerging pathogens. There's also these uh, physical defenses against biological threats, whether that's PPE or um, other improvements to the built environment, um, other, you know, uh, kind of structures you might want to engineer. Um, and um, yeah, so, so there, there's, yeah, I guess a pretty wide range of things that someone with an engineering background can slot into. Um, and I think those the the range of of possible projects for engineers is starting to become more clear. Um, so yeah, I, I would yeah certainly encourage uh, anyone out there who's listening who has a, a background in engineering, uh, whether that's you know uh, medical device engineering, mechanical engineering, civil engineering, um, you know physics, uh, anything uh, material science, um, anything kind of in that you know flavor of of discipline. Uh, certainly should should reach out and uh, if you're interested in working on biosecurity because uh, we need many more people like you. Are there any resources in particular that you would recommend uh, to these sorts of prospective biosecurity engineers um, to read or look into um, to help them with their transition? Yeah, definitely. There are a few EA forum posts that come to mind. Um, one uh, from uh, Will Bradshaw kind of describing the range of engineering expertise that's needed. Uh, and, um, and I think all, all of these will be linked in, in the show sure, notes. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's another one from uh, Andrew Snyder Beatty and Ethan Alley uh, kind of describing um, the these like kind of concrete biosecurity projects that can be done. Um, and uh, I think both Tessa Alexanian and Chris Bakerly have some good reading lists on the, the A forum. Um, for getting up to speed on biosecurity in general. So would certainly encourage uh, people to take a look at all of those. Um, and then, of course, uh, if you're not familiar with the the um, problems in biosecurity uh, overall, then there's also the uh, ADK guide on global catastrophic biological risks that's uh, very much worth a read. Super. And as I mentioned, we'll link to all of those things in the write-up. All right, let's do some final questions then. Um, one question we ask everyone is, is there any kind of research or other work you'd be especially excited to see people um, get involved with? And this is bearing in mind that maybe some people listening to this might actually have an opportunity to to help out on it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I guess as previously mentioned, you know, uh, folks with engineering backgrounds uh, certainly should should feel free to, to reach out and jump into um, some of these projects, you know, maybe developing uh, better PPE, better methods for decontamination. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of this, this whole range of, uh, of projects uh, related to things that need to be built. And uh, people who don't have engineering backgrounds uh, certainly should uh, take a look at these reading lists as well, because there's a, a lot of work to do um, there uh, as well. And, and uh, yeah, once you've kind of read all of the, the material, um, there are people 
who will be uh, happy to happy 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 for you to get in touch and um, get involved. Okay, awesome. Let's do final final questions. Um, here's one we ask everyone, which is, what three books or like films, podcasts, whatever would you recommend to someone who is listening to this and like really wants to get stuck in to learn more? Yeah. Um, so I guess maybe I'll. I'll uh, crib a little bit from Tessa's reading list. Uh, th there's um, the Apollo program for biodefense uh, report is a, a really good one um, that uh, Jake Sweat uh, had uh, spent a lot of time putting together along with uh, uh, some colleagues and uh, certainly a good place to start. Um, there are uh, some really fascinating books on um, biosecurity generally uh, that they're worth a read. There's um, the Dead Hand, which is a, a book about the Cold War generally, but there's kind of a focus on uh, Biopreparat, which is the Soviet Biological Weapons Program. A um, couple more books in, in that general vein. There's um, uh, Biosecurity Dilemmas is also uh, a good one. There's also uh, Deadliest Enemy, uh, Mike Osterholm's book uh, is a, a great one. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, check out some of the, the reading lists and uh, see what jumps out at you is interesting. Super. And again, we'll link to all those things. Last last question is where can people find you and anything you're working on online? Yeah, um, I uh, I am on Twitter. I haven't posted in you know maybe a, a few years, but at some <laughs> point I'll I'll change that and start posting things instead of just spamming my friends with uh, messages on Signal. Um, and uh, my Twitter handle is just my name uh, A J A Y K A R P U R. Um, yeah. Uh, outside of that, uh, people can email me. Uh, it's, you know, hello at firstnamelastname.com. All right. Ajay Kapoor, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And Jambi, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. That was Ajay Kapoor on metagenomic sequencing. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Kapoor, K-A-R-P-U-R. There you'll find links to all the books and resources that Ajay mentioned, plus a full transcript of the conversation. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, one of the most effective ways to help is just to leave a review wherever you're listening to this. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter. We are at Hear This Idea. If you have constructive feedback, there is a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a star rating form on the top and the bottom of each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. As always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and also to Claudia for writing full transcripts. And thank you very much for listening.